to the Jungle Times, a podcast that explains how understanding nature's management principles can help you enhance your personal power and leadership skills. In a world beset by climate change, mass migration, and social unrest, fake news and bad politics are threatening the future of our planet. This series of timely presentations will demonstrate how nature's 4.5 billion years of success is based on the emergence of creative leaders. It is my pleasure to introduce your guide, the only researcher on Earth who treks tropical jungles in a wheelchair, author and training consultant, Lawrence Poole. Welcome to the Jungle Times podcast. I'm Lawrence Poole. And this is episode number seven, called Climbing the Leader Ladder. This is a two-part series. In the next episode, I'll tell you how to take your place as an effective leader by climbing a 10-step leader ladder. But in this, part one, I'm going to talk to you about leadership itself. The definition I like is this. Leadership is the process by which we influence others to maximize their efforts in the achievement of goals. Before going any further, let me point out the four elements on which this view of leadership is defined. Number one, leadership involves social influence, not authority or power over others. Two, leaders direct others to act even if they don't have to be directed. There is no mention of the gender or other personality trait of these others, nor their attributes or even titles, but this element does recognize many kinds of leader and the ability to influence others is key. The third element tells us that leaders have a goal. Their influence has an intended outcome. And the last point, number four, tells us that what makes this definition different from strictly academic views is the idea of leadership looking to maximize collective efforts. I'll offer you another reflection. Peter Drucker, the well-known management guru, suggested that the only real definition of a leader is someone who has followers. His idea is not quite true. For example, Think of a new manager appointed to a department with 200 workers. Unless he actualizes the four elements I just mentioned, he will not be a good leader. As a manager, he need never leave his office nor utter a single word to his employees. He can work on other projects and his orders will be handed down by subordinates anyway. And, by default, his workers will have to follow his orders. But is this what leadership is really all about? Management, yes, but leadership? I think not. Drucker's definition is much too simplistic for a complex world. As a contrast, in episode number five, I spoke to you about living in a state of grace, explaining that we are each called to experience life from a mindset where love is law. That kind of thinking embraces the very definition of leadership that I favor, So, in this podcast, I want to explore why so many people are not more mindful of Creator's intent. Statistics show us that only 10% of people are natural leaders. We also know that 10% of the general population is on the other side of the bell curve. They are non-adopters who don't care about others. 
They aren't climbing the leader ladder. When we ask people who they admire as the world's best leaders, their answers are pretty much what we'd expect. We choose Mahatma Gandhi for his peaceful activism, Winston Churchill for managing one of the most difficult times in human history, Martin Luther King Jr. as a civil rights activist, Nelson Mandela because he was triumphant over political evil, Albert Einstein for discovering the laws of universe or Mother Teresa because she helped the poor. The popular answers all choose people who help others. It's easy enough to point out good deeds and admire the doers, but I want to expose leadership's true colors. This because the mood of the public trust is changing, and people are calling for a re-examination of leadership and what we should expect from good governance. The chaos we saw and the near insurrection in the American capital, one of the most powerful democracies on earth, helps us realize just how fragile our management systems and institutions really are. You should know that it was predictable. Even if failed American President Donald Trump often portrayed himself as a savior of the working man, promising to save their jobs, he couldn't do it. An analysis shows that in the years before running for office, Trump was involved in more than 3,500 lawsuits brought against him, and a large number of them involving ordinary citizens who say that he just refused to pay them. Hundreds of liens, judgments, and other documents were filed by people who accused Trump of failing to pay them for work. Among them, a dishwasher in Florida, a glass company in New Jersey, a carpet company, plumbers, painters, waiters, and dozens of others at his resorts coast to coast. Ironically, even law firms that represented him in these lawsuits were also stiffed. How can you suppose that a man who constantly lies, cheats, and mismanages is a leader, much less a savior? History shows us that we've tried to answer the question, how best can we manage ourselves in society in many ways? What we found so far can be visited from my website, thejungletimes.com. That homepage links you to more than three dozen newspapers, like the New York Times, the Asia Times, the Times of London, and even Costa Rica's Tico Times, each of them with headlines that tell us about daily conditions and how leaders are managing them. You soon discover that most humans don't see leadership in the same way that nature does. This because, in nature, there are no followers. In the jungle, everyone must lead his or her life. Each of us must do or die. We might say a lion king or a queen bee and thus give animals human traits that they don't really have. In fact, a queen bee's task is simple, lay eggs. This will allow the entire hive to come together and prosper. Other bees support this effort by doing their own tasks. If an egg layer can no longer do the job, it is soon replaced by another, more capable bee. To assure the survival of the whole, nature encourages every member of every species to adapt to constantly changing conditions. I explained in episode number four how nature equipped us with the tools and strategies needed to adjust. I said that our brain circuitry is wired so that we can prosper from playing five strategic roles. We must be stalkers of information, 
dreamers of possibilities, seers of opportunity, leaders in action to adjust, and then persuasive communicators. Unfortunately, I also explained a study by Dr. Carlos Sepoya of UCLA Berkeley, who wrote an essay that explored the three patterns of behavior that human beings are engaged in. He told us how these patterns are manifest in society, and he described specific laws that we can attribute to them. Professor Sepoya studied good people who generally act with altruistic self-interest, my brothers, myself. Bad people who generally act selfishly, even if it's to the detriment of others, me first and to hell with others. And stupid people who act to the detriment of others, even if it's to their own detriment as well. Stupid people limit their thinking to, I don't care who, as long as it's not you. Sapoya calculates that even if bad people are selfish and egocentric, they are not as dangerous to society as stupid people. To explain, he wrote five fundamental principles of stupidity. Number one states that everyone underestimates the number of stupid people in circulation at any time. Number two says the probability that a person is stupid remains independent of any other characteristic that person may possess. Three says a stupid person causes loss to another or to a group while not necessarily deriving gain and even possibly incurring loss. Four states, non-stupid people always underestimate the damaging potential of stupid individuals. In particular, non-stupid people constantly forget that at all times, in every place, and under any circumstance, dealing with and or associating with stupid people always turns out to be a costly mistake. And five suggest that a stupid person is the most dangerous type of person in society. As is evident with his third principle, Sapoya identifies two factors that must be considered in order to assess individual behavior the benefit that the individual acquires, and the loss that the individual causes to others. Dr. Sapoya described good people as those intelligent citizens who contribute to society and who know how to leverage their contribution into reciprocal benefits. They can also be altruists who consciously accept to be good for moral and ethical reasons. Or they can be naive people who contribute good from a sense of duty. They are most often taken advantage of by the bandits, who are the bad people, those who pursue selfish interests. Bad people can also be sociopaths or psychopaths, who have no agenda except to inflict hurt on others or on society as a whole. Stupid people are counterproductive to both their own interests and those of other people. Sapoya refined his idea about bandits by noting that they harm the general welfare based on the gains and losses they incur. In his book, The Tempest, Shakespeare writes, Misery acquaints a man with strange bedfellows. In recent years, that quote was reworded to now say, Politics makes strange bedfellows. The literal meaning of the saying is that people with little in common often come together because of a few shared political interests. 
At this point, you should know that in order to rule the world, bad and stupid people have joined forces. It'll explain why we see a mob so quickly go crazy and get destructive. You should also know that many of these people, you'll find a symbol on the back of the American $1 bill, have put themselves above the eye of God. That symbol shows us how the world is divided into pyramids of power. Ever since the pharaohs of Egypt, God-man, we've known that as management structures go, pyramids contain and focus energy. I explained a little bit about this when I spoke about nature managing complex situations in episode number three. Pyramids are formed by connecting a base to a point above that base called the apex. Several kinds of pyramid exist and these depend on the shape of their base. They can be square, rectangular, hexagonal and more. A square-based pyramid has four sides that are right-angled triangles and these join at the apex. Thousands of years ago, we discovered how the pyramid form, its structure or shape, causes energy within it to rise to the apex as a spiral ascent. Since then, our leadership structures have been based on that flow of energy. Even nature suggests that we can manage complex situations by climbing to the apex. There, we can control the ascent and flow of energy. So then, we the people are managed within pyramid structures. Think of it. Top management up around the apex, then middle management, then workers at the base. Apply the idea to corporations, the CEO, vice presidents, directors, and then supervisors, and lastly, the workers. Governments work that way. President and or prime minister, senate, congress or parliament, then the ministries and the workers, etc. Pyramids contain a spiral ascent of energy which can be condensed at the apex to then trickle down as power. We like to think that we live in a democracy where everyone's opinion is given equal opportunity, but that isn't even a pipe dream. Here in Canada, for example, my many years in politics on behalf of the rights of disabled persons have taught me that casting a vote doesn't mean democracy. When the 80,000 voters in my electoral district have an opinion, we must first convince our local representative. We'll take our concerns to his party's caucus. Then it'll answer to the PMO, the Prime Minister's office, who has 33 million other opinions to deal with before he decides and then his decision trickles back down to we the people. One at the top decides for the 80,000 below. The planetary management system includes countless small pyramids of power, but the form itself, pyramid, does not serve us well. This because it divides every issue into we at the top versus them at the bottom, that kind of thinking. In fact, Pyramids are not a natural form. Half of an octahedron, or think two pyramids joined at the base, a pyramid is only part of the infinite energy grid that is the world. Ancient alchemists believed the pyramid to be an unholy structure because of how it forces energy into that spiral ascent. Pyramids reflect the command and control mentality that defines armies, monarchies, corporations, and oligarchies. 
But you should know that pyramids work well in command and control structures, and they have dominated all competitors by controlling a rigid hierarchy. For several decades now, management has explored viable alternatives because progressive leaders know that the pyramid is out of date. It no longer suits a fast-moving market economy or a changing national agenda, nor does it suit today's employee temperament and values. Its rigid hierarchy hinders agility, dedication, and engagement. This is why many organizations are looking for alternatives. Rigid pyramids can be turned into more robust structures by empowering teams. A more flexible approach can stimulate employees with responsibility and personal growth. The pyramid belongs on the rubbish heap, but how do we create a more progressive organization? How do we change the way we manage ourselves? The basic idea is to flatten the pyramid. In most organizations, people who do similar tasks are grouped together and manage in a traditional hierarchy. The advantage of this allows for quick decision-making and easy communication. Members can also learn from each other, and since they possess complementary skill sets and similar interests, they can grow together. To restructure, companies should seek to group workers into teams focused on filling customer needs. The division of labor in a new flatter structure recognizes that, by seeing each other as clients, workers achieve more efficiency and higher outputs. A flatter organization can combine elements of both the functional and the hierarchical management model, but can handle more complexity. By grouping people into functional units, you can more easily separate them to work on specific projects with complementary responsibilities. In a flat structure, team members have more autonomy and can take on more responsibility. This kind of matrix increases productivity of teams, fosters greater innovation and creativity, and allows managers to solve decision-making problems through group interaction. The transformation takes planning and effort, but it can work marvels in large companies with the resources to manage a complex framework. A flatter organization will disrupt a traditional top-down management system. Management is decentralized, so there is no more boss per se. Every employee becomes his or her own boss and can thus eliminate red tape and improve communications in his or her workplace. For example, employees with creative ideas needn't wade through levels of manager to get that idea to the one person making decisions. They simply communicate directly with a target and this on a colleague-to-colleague level. Fortunately, the new paradigm pioneers have marked out a path. They've explored a five-step process to invert the pyramid. The first step to a more progressive management structure should examine the inverted pyramid model because employees are an integral part of the structure's client capital. They are its real value. In an inverted structure, employees might perform the same tasks, but the rest of the organization is focused on supporting them. Managers still make most of the decisions, but they do so out of the need to serve the workers, not the other way around. Leaders become servants. Number two suggests that we empower the management team. 
The second step is to introduce empowerment programs in key parts of the organization. This should start with top management as they must support any change program. Workers need tools to work as teams, so management must give them the flexibility and agility to acquire these tools so they can adjust. Employees with far-reaching responsibilities should determine their own way of working. Number three tells us to flatten the organization by empowering key contributors. The third step smashes the whole pyramid, chopping it up into many empowered teams. For some organizations, this is difficult, so they should work towards a flatter organization, removing as many management layers as they can. Number four, then, networks the empowered teams. Organizations that flatten their pyramid structure should then organize into networks of independent teams. These networks can be served by a small but very efficient headquarters. Teams can be grouped by region, product, service, responsibility, or customers served. They should determine their own way of working and as they'll be held responsible for achieving results. Empowered teams should be multidisciplinary, but not exceed 15 people or so. Organizations should install a system that allows all the workers to communicate with each other at every level. Many organizations provide coaches to help teams if they need it. Coaches should not have decision-making authority, though, otherwise things will quickly degrade back to that old hierarchical model. Companies want workers to be more entrepreneurial, so they should encourage healthy competition between teams letting them share in the success or failure of the whole team and of the organization as a whole. Number five suggests that an ecosystem of small companies should emerge. Go one step further by creating a network of empowered teams, offering team members ownership in their teams. Teams can then become independent companies. A good example is the Chinese company Hire Group a multinational home appliances and consumer electronics mega company headquarters in Qingdao, China. Globally, Hire is the number one brand of major appliances for 12 consecutive years, including 2020. The role of senior managers at Hire's group has changed radically. They still determine overall strategy, but their primary concern is the small companies who need their investment advice. This kind of dynamic ensures that teams who add value to the company survive for the long run. As higher groups management model has such incredible promise, why isn't it more widely adopted? Well, I'll tell you about that after this short break. The challenge of the pyramid management system is the incredible menace that a self-serving leader represents when he reaches the apex, the top of the heap. The leader ladder is thus filled with fascist thinkers and their minions. In fact, fascist thinkers manage so many pyramid structures today that they control the world's resources. Try to wrap your mind around the fact that 1% of people control 82% of Earth's resources. And the illusion is that those resources are evenly distributed among that 1%. The fact is, 
If you have $4,200 worth of assets, U.S. to your name, you are richer than 50% of the world's citizens. So then, the math shows that the bulk of the world's wealth is controlled by very few people. That narrow focus on acquiring material resources traps the primitive part of our central nervous system, the reptilian brain circuit, which is cold-blooded, into closed-loop thinking. Reptilians think more of the same for me. People are waking up to the harsh reality that trillionaires and billionaires who rule this world's pyramids of power don't really give a shit about ordinary folks. In fact, regardless of its content, the pyramid management context only recognizes two rules. One, if you are not part of our pyramid, your opinions don't matter, so fuck you. And two, if you are part of our pyramid, get in line. There are others above you on the path to our apex. Believe it or not, apex predators are conspiring to control our lives, to control the resources we all need to live. These reptilians need slaves. And don't miss the difference. A trillionaire has 1,000 billion. I'll bet most of you are not aware that fascists try to rule the world from their three centers of power, Vatican City, London City, and Washington, D.C. Did you know that these are totally independent jurisdictions? The Vatican, for example, is an enclave within the city of Rome, Italy, but not part of it. Vatican City has been independent since 1929. It is considered a distinct territory under, and I quote, the full ownership, exclusive dominion, and sovereign authority of the Papal See. The Papal See is the name given to the jurisdiction of the Catholic Church. It is also a sovereign entity under international law. It is only 120 acres in size and has a population of less than 900, but Vatican City is the smallest sovereign state on Earth, and yet it has held authority over the Earth's citizens for many hundreds of years. And did you know that, like Vatican City, London City doesn't refer to the sprawling city of London, England? London City is much smaller area that was officially created in 1888. It is not a borough of larger London either, as that status is reserved for the 32 districts that comprise the greater area. Rather, London City is a totally independent enclave within Greater London. Usually referred to as just the city, it's a little over one square mile in area and totally independent from Greater London. Its authority, called the City of London Corporation, is unique in the United Kingdom. Listed at the top of the Centers of Commerce Index, the London City Corporation is a meeting point for world businesses. It even has its own independent police force. Its resident population is less than 10,000 people, but more than 500,000 are employed by its financial services and insurance sectors. In any given week, one million people will visit there. And while you must surely know that Washington, D.C. is the capital of the United States of America, the District of Columbia is an important world capital, too. An act of Congress approved the creation of this capital city, decreeing that it be located along the Potomac River. 
And then the Constitution provided for a separate district to be created under the jurisdiction of Congress. Washington, D.C. is not a part of any U.S. state. It is a completely independent territory. All the branches of the federal government are centered there, but Washington is also the home of 177 independent embassies, and it is headquarters to many international organizations, including the World Bank, the International Monetary Fund, the Organization of American States, the American Association for Retired Persons, and the Red Cross, all of which are sovereign entities. Washington is managed by an independent 13-member council and an elected mayor. Its residents also elect a non-voting congressional delegate to the House of Reps, but has no representation in the U.S. Senate. Voters choose a presidential delegate in accordance with a constitutional amendment agreed to in 1961, but otherwise they have no ballot. The regular population of Washington, D.C. is 700,000 citizens, making it the 20th most populated city in the U.S. But the citizens from surrounding areas raise the working population to more than one million people a day. In the fascist world order, Vatican City is mandated to govern us morally. London City rules us economically, and Washington, D.C. is charged with policing us militarily. A major problem with this world order, aside from the fact that its management structure is a pyramid, is that other pyramids, like the Chinese communists, the Russian oligarchs, the oil-producing cartels, organized crime families, and terrorists of every stripe, have their eyes on the exact same prize power and all the gold it provides. Those other pyramids have said fuck you to the New World Order and its Euro-American fascists. The fact of the matter is the pyramid structure lends itself perfectly to exploiting people and resources. Explained as the Golden Pyramid scam, that crime is a lot more profitable than any Ponzi game or other frauds. The Golden Pyramid Scam allows an apex predator, or a CEO, to control the flow of energy, of organizational resources, material and human, within the pyramid. He or she can dictate the ways and means to dispose of this organization's structural capital. Downsizing, outsourcing jobs, selling off assets, and refinancing a company is the prize in a golden pyramid scam. Everything gets translated into liquid gold in its spiral ascent to then be siphoned off in the name of increasing shareholder value. In the last few years, we've seen this done by so many companies and institutions that the world's economies are faltering. Does anyone remember the bank bailouts in 2008? Belying the numbers tossed about at the time, the Levi Economics Institute has produced a detailed study that says $29 trillion change hands from the Federal Reserve to the banksters involved in that scam. The Levi Institute was founded at Bard College in 1986 as a non-profit, non-partisan, independently funded research organization devoted to the public trust. Friends, 
The problems we all face require real solutions, and this means important decisions have to be made. This is a complex world, and even if you think it is mismanaged by fallible humans, all that means is that we have a desperate need to recognize who our real leaders are. The world has become a dismal place because bad and stupid people have spoiled the atmosphere of trust needed to determine and apply real solutions. We have to understand our need for good leadership first. Here's what we can expect in the foreseeable future. As bad as 2020 might have been, there are many indicators that suggest that 2021 will be worse. As you may know, we don't yet have a grip on the COVID-19 pandemic, even if vaccines are being distributed. These vaccines are largely unproven, and as yet, we haven't even been told what they actually do. What are the downsides? You have to wonder, though, can we really trust products created at warp speed by Big Pharma? This one, governments have assured them that they are free of any responsibility for mistakes. We are truly living in jungle times. An indicator of that is how many people still refuse to protect themselves and others by obeying a few simple recommendations from health professionals. As the virus is airborne, we are asked to wear masks, to respect safe distances, and to keep our environment clean. It seems people would rather believe crazy-ass conspiracies than buy into scientific evidence or good sense. Already millions have died, and so many have suffered job loss, those indicators will only increase in the foreseeable future. Without income, many folks face eviction and homelessness. And if travel continues to be restricted, people that rely on tourism and hospitality will falter. Slowdown will also threaten people with food shortages, and that could lead to a hunger pandemic. These and other hardships are raising stress levels, and this can be difficult to manage. High stress invariably leads to mental health issues like depression, and these cause people to self-medicate with drugs and alcohol, so add more crime and more violence into the challenge. As a result of all of this, as the COVID-19 pandemic continues, governments will want to further restrict our freedoms, and then they'll want to monitor our behavior. This opens the door to despots of every stripe. In episode 5 of this podcast, called Love is Magic, I explain how emotion helps make up our mind. When we love, our thymus gland releases the positive hormones that help us reach a state of grace. Then we see the world as a wondrous place. When we fear, our adrenals stimulate aggression. From the negative mindset, it's easy to imagine the world as a dangerous place. Whether we see it as positive or as negative, though, our different mindsets are perceiving the same real world. We know that the fear of chaos is a powerful, if negative, motivator. Plenty of people subscribe to fascist memes. Who doesn't long for order, for good governance? But understand this, fascism is not a political institution. If fascists wore brown shirts and jackboots, they'd be easy enough to recognize. Fascism begins as a way of thinking. When people react to fear, their body releases its fight-or-flight hormones, and then they are very easy to manipulate 
by anyone who promises to protect them. Fascist thinking is how people react when they feel a need to be protected. If you understand the process, you can easily separate good leaders from bad ones. You can just check their promises. Are they inciting you to aggression or goodwill? We'll say of the great leader, he who kept his head when all about him were losing theirs. As a reaction to fear, people crave order and authority. We want to believe that having some measure of control over others will keep us safe. T.W. Adorno, a German psychologist and philosopher, introduced social sciences to what he described as the F scale, F for fascism, as far back as 1950. Since then, we've had a way to measure the need for authority in people. That need for leaders who impose authority is the seed to fascism. Along with the description to this podcast, I'll put a link to the website where you can take the test. You can then see just how fascist your values really are. It'll also give you a glimpse at how millions of German citizens became demented Nazis who followed a madman into a world war. And it'll give you a look at the state of politics today. Adorno described how certain personalities make for dogmatic and prejudiced leaders. He wrote, Authoritarian people demand loyalty from others as they want to impose their way of seeing the world on them. Fascist thinking is therefore intolerant of ambiguity and differences. It has an exaggerated need to dispense its sense of order on the world. People who fit this authoritarian profile tend to be attracted to ideologies and causes that demand submission to authority, like political parties, religions, sectarian cults, the military, and big business. I've explained how nature's law is altruistic self-interest. I've also explained that we can't break the law, even if we can break ourselves against it. We'll try to break the law whenever we insist a little too vigorously on our own interests first. Think about this. The more you think in selfish terms like me first, the more you are to the right of the political spectrum. If you prize altruism, you lean to the political left. Nature's law is the absolute center, while the political right is more conservative and the left is more liberal. The farther right you are, the more you embrace a view wherein order and hierarchy are inevitable, natural, normal, even desirable. These are accepted as the results of traditional social differences and competition in a free market economy. The left wing supports social equality, often in opposition to hierarchy. Left wing politics typically includes concern for those in society who are disadvantaged, with a belief that unjustified inequalities have to be abolished. Left wing supporters claim that human development flourishes when people are engaged in cooperative and respectful relations, and that we thrive when excessive differences in status power, and wealth are eliminated. Of course, both the extreme left and the extreme right are fascist as soon as they try to impose their views on others. Both highbrow thinkers and lesser intellects can be fascists, whether we are from privilege or poverty, whether educated or not. 
every race, religion, and nationality harbors fascist thinkers who can be both young and old, men and women, nice or not, gainfully employed or on the dole. Fascist leaders are poised to capitalize on every crisis. They often create the problems that they then promise to solve. I'll tell you more about this after a short break. When fascist thinking is shared, it becomes part of an ideological movement that allows full-blown regimes to emerge. When crisis or chaos give a fascist regime an entry point, its leaders first look to control a political system. They don't care if it leans left or right, even if the right and its me-first ideology is easier to manipulate. Fascism is made possible by those nationalistic ideas that are prized by individuals, like flags, anthems, and fight songs. Fascists appropriate and use them to create disinformation, which becomes the metaphysical glue that binds people to their vision and political agenda. Aware of it or not, our emotional attachment to this view can be manipulated. Understanding how metaphysical ideas nourish physical life is part of a new science called epigenetics. Slogans like Black Lives Matter or Me Too can galvanize an entire movement. These political memes are even drafted by major political parties who use them to manipulate public opinion. MAGA hats and clever sayings on t-shirts are used to separate us from them. And they're a good source of revenue. Memes give power to the leadership hierarchy. Fascism relies on our willingness to surrender our individuality to group thought. We do this so we can band together against a perceived threat, threats that are generated from both inside and outside our group. Fascists rally around an agenda that gives importance and value to the beliefs we all share as a group. Fascists gain power by reading media polls that supply them with our concerns and a media that allows them to spread propaganda and describe their solutions to our needs. They cause chaos because they can benefit from uncertainty, confusion, and our desire for change. You know, friends, before the 18th century, people gave their loyalty to the royals, those lords who made decisions based on the needs of a lifetime. Then, borders changed hands without an outcry from we the people. We were just the rabble. No one protested the violation of our national integrity back then. We did whatever his lordship told us to do. We followed our chiefs into battle. Later, nationalistic sentiments were politicized, and the common man began thinking for himself and not as the property of a king or a court. And, as everyone has the right to be protected from the barbarians, we thought that we should better organize ourselves. Overt manipulation of this nationalistic sentiment began with the French Revolution. At first, the French fought for liberty, equality, and fraternity, but they soon turned against foreign aggressors, as defined by their rulers. Napoleon began his empire building when he imposed French culture on the great unwashed masses. 
Other nations naturally fought back to preserve their own identity, also defined by their elite few. And so we've had many world wars. From Spain to Russia, the masses rose in defense of their home team, defending us against those imperialist others and their new ideas. In this century, the globalization of fascism followed the international workers' movement. After communists took over Russia, it promised liberation for the working classes everywhere. Fascist gulags quickly changed the communist sentiment from hope to fear. Italian fascists then introduced the idea of imposed liberation as a political strategy. And then Germany introduced us to the excesses of fascist mindset when they tried to destroy resistance to their authority and replaced good order with evil intent. Fascists are antichrist, behaving on Luciferian principles. Various forms of their evil ideology has even been promoted in recent years, and today's fascism is becoming a full-fledged possibility in the USA. Fascist thinkers have taken over the GOP's right-wing agenda. Can you say conspiracy? I knew you could. In Free Inquiry magazine, author Lawrence W. Britt lists 14 common threads that draw fascist thinkers into patterns of behavior. These 14 ways of being are more prevalent and intense in some places than they are in others. But all fascists share at least some of them as their modus operandi. See how many you can spot in your own community. Number one tells us that fascists hide behind nationalism and tradition. Using select historical memory as fact, fascists mask their intent under a mystique that links them to an imagined better past. Fascists promise to bring us back to the good old future. God and history gave them this authority and it must be obeyed. Fascists will see that their loyalty is secured and to do it, they appropriate national symbols like flags and events to then manipulate followers. Two says that fascists unify believers by identifying common enemies. The most significant of their shared ideologies is having a scapegoat who can divert attention from real problems. Fascist thinking blame shifts for failures in the system and focuses frustration on others. Their method of choice, disinformation, is very effective. Fascists demonize enemies and label competitive tactics as evil, while their own use of identical tactics is seen as necessary and good. Opponents of their methods are labeled traitors to be despised and dealt with accordingly. Three says that fascists disregard human rights. Fascists consider democratic rights and social rules to be as hindrance to realizing their objectives. With clever use of propaganda, they marginalize and even demonize select groups until we accept their abuse. When their abuse of human rights is blatant, their tactics become secrecy, denial, personal attack, moral ambiguity, and disinformation to shame victims. The fourth thread says that fascists are militaristic. Fascists identify closely with the military apparatus and the corporate infrastructure that supports it. A disproportionate share of national resources is allocated to the military, even if domestic needs are acute. The military is seen as an expression of nationalism 
and is used to assert national goals, to intimidate other trading nations, and to increase the power and prestige of the ruling elite. A fifth common thread says that fascists are sexist. Other than the fact that a fascist culture is male-centric, it views women as second-class citizens and wants to manage human procreation. Fascists are adamantly anti-choice and homophobic. Their attitudes are being codified into laws, and they enjoy support from right-wing conservatives and Judeo-Christian religious leaders who give them legitimacy by supporting their human rights abuses and their anti-Christ activities. A sixth threat is that fascists want to control the media. With fascist regimes, mass media comes under the control of an elite few, so that the message does not stray from the party line. Their zeitgeist, projected into the world, reflects how the mainstream media is fake news because it does not project their view of culture and truth. Some regimes have subtle and not-so-subtle ways of ensuring media orthodoxy. We'll remember how the Saudi government assassinated Jamal Khashoggi for his dissenting journalism. Seven suggests that fascists are obsessed with national security, often an instrument of oppression that operates in secret and beyond human constraints. The national security apparatus of a country soon falls under the control of fascist elite. Their criminal actions are justified under the guise of protecting national security. They question the activities of others and portray them as unpatriotic and even treasonous. Things get rather demonic when fascists act in secret. Eight tells us that fascists have a conservative religious agenda. Unlike communists, fascists and proto-fascist thinkers are not godless. In fact, fascist regimes attach themselves to the most right-wing religion of the territory and they portray themselves to be defenders of that cult. Common perception is shaped to show that opposing the elite and their religious power is tantamount to an attack on God. Nine says that fascists protect corporate capitalism. Fascist thinkers give corporations more rights than citizens. Although the personal life of a citizen is under stricter control, the ability of corporations to operate in relative freedom is not compromised. The fascists see how corporate capital supplies them with military power and is therefore a means of financial and social control. The tenth thread says that in the name of good governance, fascists try to suppress working-class people. Since organized labor is seen as a power center that can challenge their political agenda, and the finances of their corporate allies, the labor class is inevitably despised, crushed, and made powerless. The poor are an underclass, viewed both with suspicion and contempt. For some, like the prosperity preachers, being poor is akin to having a vice. Eleven says that fascists have a disdain for liberals and intellectuals of every stripe, even their own. Intellectual pursuits and the inherent free exchange of ideas are anathema to fascist regimes. So are artistic expression and the people associated with that. Intellectuals and academics are thought to be subversives who are contrary to national security and patriotic ideas. You don't think, you just obey. A twelfth thread says that fascists are obsessed with crime and punishment. 
Most fascist regimes maintain draconian systems of criminal justice. They have huge prison populations who are often housed under the direst of conditions. The police are often glorified and have unchecked power, which leads to rampant abuse. Hatred of criminals or terrorists or traitors is widely promoted to the population as an excuse for needing more power. There be dragons there too, they think. Now the 13th thread says that fascists are anti-democratic and work to falsify elections. We've seen this. Where elections with legitimate candidates are held, they are often perverted by fascist thinkers who fashion a desired result. Elections in the form of plebiscites and public opinion polls are often bogus. Common methods of fraud include maintaining control of the election districts of the machinery by intimidating and disenfranchising opposition voters, by destroying and disallowing legal votes, and as a last result, by turning to a judiciary who is beholden to the power elite to claim voter fraud. The 14th thread that binds people into a cohesive group is that a fascist hierarchy is rampant with cronyism and corruption. Are you surprised? promise to share the wealth and watch how the rats quickly gather. Do you know that business types and their political wannabes become unnatural bedfellows who, not mysteriously, use their positions and connections to further enrich themselves? It never surprises me that people sell their soul, but it always shocks me to discover just how cheaply they sold it for, if only they had an idea of its real worth. Do any of the above traits ring an alarm bell for you? Now tell me, who did you vote for? Think about it. I'll talk to you again in part two of Climbing the Leader Ladder. Look for episode number eight when I'll tell you about five forces in nature that contributed to our fascist tendencies. I'll also explain the steps we must climb up a leader ladder to answer Creator's intent, so you'll want to tune in to that episode. Folks, if you enjoyed this episode of The Jungle Times, give it a positive review. Tell your friends about it and subscribe to this channel. If you didn't like it, please write and tell me why not. If you'd like a transcript of the podcast, visit my website at www.thejungletimes.com. Thanks again. Until next time, adios. Jungle Times podcast was written and animated by Lawrence Poole. If you enjoyed his presentation, share it with your friends and colleagues, click the like button, and leave your opinions in the comment section. Visit thejungletimes.com to learn more about Lawrence and his adventures. Follow him on Facebook, LinkedIn, or Twitter. You can order his latest book, Invest in Your Creative Capital, from Amazon.com. Subscribe to this channel in order to receive all the latest news. Thanks for listening. Music